Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Uh, here is the Disability Study Channel in a new book. Sorry, in a new book networks. I'm Shuan. Welcome back to our our I mean podcast room. Today, I feel very pleased, pleased and honored to invite Professor Sarah Dunphy to discuss her newest book um, entitled "Disability in Contemporary China: Citizenship, Identity, and Culture." So again, the first thing I want to do just briefly introduce myself as the host of this um, podcast and uh, post channel. Um, my name is Shu Wan. I'm PhD in history uh, at the university at Buffalo in United States, and my research mainly involves the history of deafness and disability in early 20th century China. So next thing I may want to introduce Professor Sarah Johnson to briefly talk about herself to us. Thank you, Professor. Oh, thank you, Shuan, and thank you very much for inviting me uh, to this podcast. It's uh, it's really quite timely as my as the book initially Disability in Contemporary China initially came out in 2020. That was during sort of the the depths of the COVID pandemic, um, and that was in hardback. But now it's out in paperback, so and just out in paperback. So this is this is fantastic to be able to have this opportunity to talk to you. Um, so um, to introduce myself, I'm a professor of Chinese studies and disability at the University of Nottingham in the UK. Um, sort of in terms of my history, I really am, um, I, I would class myself as, a, I suppose, a, as a China, a China specialist. I've been working and visiting and studying China for over 30 years now. Um, I've, I, I even started learning Chinese back in 1989. If I hope that doesn't date me too much, but um, as we all know, Chinese language is very difficult. So I still feel like I'm learning it today. But I, I do like to use um, my knowledge of China and my um, my Chinese, my ability to read and, and listen to Chinese and speak Chinese um, to, that in a way that informs and and I hope enhances my, the research that I do. Um, my original sort of my earliest research was about Chinese history and culture and literature. Um, my PhD was set in the 16th century, so I'm a historian like you, and um, uh, and so that I think it's one of the characteristics of my research. Even though I'm now looking at more contemporary issues relating to disability in China. Um, is that it is really strongly embedded and informed by China's historical uh, progress and processes and understandings. Um, so, yeah, so that's me. I'm really looking at uh, disability in China, both historically and today. Okay, thank you, Professor. Thank you so much for your brief talk of yourself and your research. So my next question will be, okay, I won't say most of disability historians may encounter being, I mean, mostly disability historians 
have have experienced or being asked by people like why do you take interest in disability studies it's not so i want to say it's not so I want to even now I'm saying in the academic work is still marginalized field. So why do you why did you take interest in this field? Thank you. That's that's a really good question. And, and actually, if um, that question isn't asked so much uh, it, when I when I give talks in in the UK uh, or in uh, you know in in Ireland or in in Europe or in the US, um, I think that question is I'm asked that question most when I go to China or I speak. Uh, with scholars from China, or do I do my research in China? And and I think, um, unlike many people who do take up their research of disability from a very personal perspective because they themselves are disabled, um, I, I personally am, I, I am non-disabled, but I do have personal experience of disability. And um, in the acknowledgements in my book, I spend quite a, a, a long time talking about my own family's experience with disability. My daughter has cerebral palsy, and I think. That was really one of the triggers that sort of sort of took you know as I, as I was living with a with a, a disabled person and seeing the world both through their eyes and also through as as a parent of a child with disability I, I began to sort of to feel very um, very much um, I suppose the ways in which disabled people are treated, and and this is treated in good ways, but also very commonly in bad ways, but often using vocabulary that can be is seen to be positive, but also can be is can be very sort of marginalising and and demeaning, and and it was those sort of contradictions in my personal experience that. That that led me really to think about how I could how I could draw on those understandings and take them to um, a, an academic level and and so what I did was I sort of began in the early two thousands to to think about disability in China and try to sort of bring those two worlds together um, and one of the first things that I did notice was that there was this massive gap and really nobody was writing about disability um, in any substantive way whatsoever. However, um, there were some notable exceptions. I think Matthew Corman's work, um, he did some excellent ethnographic work on disabled men's experiences in Beijing, sort of around the sort of 1980s and 1990s. Um, but beyond that, in terms of published works, there was very little going on. Um, and so I felt there was an absolute sort of gap uh, when we came to look at disability in China. Um, and it's quite interesting because when we talk about disability in the UK, we people are always talking about how much we need to know more and, and there's such a big gap in it. But if you take it that to China, then as I'm sure you already know, sure, this is, you know, it's a massive, it's a massive, massive field that really hasn't, we've only just started to scratch the surface. So beyond the gap then, I suppose the next thing that sort of got me thinking about this sort of transition into looking at disability in China was the fact that the focus of people's work, those, those people who work who were looking at disability really were looking at it in very specific fields. And I'm thinking about disability, sort of disabled people's experiences in education, disabled people in social work and social care, um, discrimination in employment situations. Um, there was some legal work looking at uh, rights and, and and other sort of legal processes. Um, a few a few sort of semi-historical stuff and and and, and of course uh, Coleman's anthropological work. So there was this again another rather large lacuna in that we weren't looking at disability in China from a cultural or, so, or a predominantly sociological perspective. And I think that's really important because we can't really extricate sociology and culture and we can't then look at all of these other ways in which disabled experiences happen in a particular cultural context without looking at, at culture and history. So my thought was somebody needs to come in and, and try to tie all of these various sort of threads together to try to provide some sort of overarching framework. Now, of course, working in the UK context or, or, or a global North context, we do have a, a you know some fantastically sort of well-developed and strong understandings of how disability is understood and experienced. And of course, um, you know, the social model is 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 one of the I think one of the greatest contributions of UK scholarship to to the study of disability. You know Mike Oliver's work and 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 others who have who have taken 
that understanding that disability is created by um, social barriers uh, and is not in, uh, uh, as a result of the fault of the individual in themselves. They've they've disentangled the relationship between disability as a social um, issue and impairment as a, a more medicalized and individualized issue. And so those those things are, are sort of really important. Um, but what I felt was as people applied these theories that were developed in the Western context to places that were beyond that context, and not just China, but a lot of work has been done on on Africa, South America, other other um, areas uh, in you know around the world, but also even within Europe, um, it, it, it was quite clear that there was a disconnect between. Although it was help, very helpful in understand helping us to see where those barriers and those sources of oppression were, whatever you do, it, it made both the context <laughs> and but also the people who are living through those experiences seem seem bad <laughs> i don't i don't know how better to describe it but i always felt that if i was if i was going to use a social social model and sort of un, help, sort of unpick um, you know cinema or literature or policy you know, China would always come out bad. It would, and it would also co- always come out worse than anywhere else that has had a longer history of, of disability rights and protection of, of, of disabled persons, um, you know, um, livelihoods and opportunities. So, and that really wasn't what I was seeing when I was, or, or hearing when I was talking to people who were disabled in China, um, but, but also reading the works that they were producing. And and what I was get, getting was a sense that actually some of their, well, a lot of their experience was very positive. And, uh, you know, taking a social model and saying, well, actually, what, what's happening here is really bad, seemed to devalue their experiences. So I wanted to think about how we could take, sort of step back a bit and, and, and try to think a little bit more broadly about how culture, context, history and, you know, contemporary policies and 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 processes all all combine you know not necessarily in china but elsewhere as well to 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 frame and you know um i suppose challenge or or even um you know sort of strengthen reinforce people's experience of what it, what it means to be disabled in a particular context um so that was really really why i thought thought about sort of moving into disability studies and looking particularly at china Okay, Professor, thank you so much for your answer. So I totally agree with you because one thing you mentioned, like okay, <clears throat> um, uh, about like uh, like uh, the in- importance of um, introducing, like for example, Chinese cultural context and social context into the uh, promising or expanding study of disability in the world. Because I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm as I mentioned, I'm also a disability historian, so I pretty sure like I'm in agreement with you, like. Uh, I want to say in the, the field, in general sense, the field of a disability studies is, is still dominated by uh, still, I mean, I want to say still Eurocentric or much more precisely is it's much, it's very Anglo-American. So mm-hmm. what I mean is that the most important framework and theory uh, are created and contributed by scholars in, in America and the United, in the United States and the UK. So while, but uh, as you mentioned, like maybe some framework created by, I mean, scholars studying American, like America and uh, British, I mean, UK, may not really fit into to I mean to 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 the to the discussion of a representation and the perception of disability in the remainder world, especially in the global south. So next thing, let's go back to your book. So one thing, I, another thing I noticed in your answer to my first question, second question, is that you mentioned the two important issues. One is like disability, sorry, um, disabled people's experience with, I mean, discrimination. And another thing, you emphasize the importance of disability rights. So in my view, the two issues they both are, they are both related to citizenship. And when I read your book, I noticed that the relation between citizenship and the disability is um, one of the major concerns of your book. So I want to make sure, could you please briefly talk about, like, because as you mentioned, you're a historian, could you please briefly talk about like the dynamics in the 
in the uh, dynamics in the relations in the I mean twenty for example in the general sense in the twentieth century China. Okay, yeah, no, that's a really good question, and thank you for picking up on that. Um, and I like the way that you talk about the changing relationship and uh, between sort of disability and citizenship, and and I think it's really important to think about that. I think one of the the major findings about you know in my research was that citizenship and citizenship for disabled people has been very fluid and very dynamic and continues to be that. And it's um, and thinking about why we need to embed it in Chinese historical developments is really important too because where I start the book I don't go all the way back in history um, that's um, that's what I'm leaving to somebody else to do but I, I sort of start the story um, in the mid 19th sort of century uh, sort of working work and I work my way forward and why I've chosen that particular period was I think it's the it's the time in which China's China transitioned from um, an empire to a modern nation nation state, and in itself was grappling with these notions about you know what constituted a citizen. Um, and it, we often think of disabled people as being marginalised within these broader discussions of citizenship, but actually, what I found was that disabled people were almost um, drawn into these discussions about what made a citizen in the early days of the the Chinese um, the Chinese um, Republic um, and and on into the in later on into sort of the Mao era from 1949 onwards were really framed around the body and the mind and not just any old body and mind but but essentially the ideal citizen was was somebody who had uh was was fit in body fit and able in body but also uh, sort of healthy and uh, in mind too um and i think so so th- it, it it wasn't an obvious thing that disabled people were, were were drawn into this discussion but they they then became very much affected by by these discussions and they were held up as examples of of how not to be an ideal citizen but also how to be an ideal citizen as well and thinking back about why why this period was so important i think for setting up what what comes later um is the fact that chinese the Chinese um, you know, officials and leaders at the time were really grappling themselves with how to move beyond traditional ideas and particularly those philosophical ideas such as sort of Confucianism in particular, which, which uh, as we all know, was, was the, uh, the, the, the idea, the thought that came in for most, most banging, really. You know? um, but Confucianism itself was... W- really set the tone for how people um, in who sort of inhabited non-normative um, ideals of, of, of physical and mental health should be incorporated or not into society. And I think this was really because of the way in which um, the individual was and, and their, their body and their actions were subsumed um, or li- or understood through their functions. And this could be either through a social role or maybe through the, the way in which one conceived a civilised person. Um, and in Confucian thought that civilised person tends to be male, but I will leave it as, as ungendered at the moment. Um, so in terms of the social roles, roles a person was um, a useful person to society if they could economically support their family or the broader clan. But they were also important to society because, and particularly the family and the lineage, because they could then bear children. So this bearing of children and offering economic support to that clan or familial structure was, were, were the core parts of people's social roles. So if you weren't able to perform those social roles, then, th- then what, what use were you to, to society under Confucian thought? And in terms of that, you know, if you, you had to be useful, but you also have to be civilized. I suppose with Confucianism and 
there was this notion that you had to constantly strive to improve yourself, this continual um, striving to both improve yourself um, intellectually, but also improve yourself in terms of your relationships with other people in both within your immediate circles, but also beyond. And that any imperfections in that air of civility that you cultivated within yourself um, implied vulgarity and imperfect you know sort of this imperfect uh, an imperfection of mind and body so so if somebody wasn't able to do these things or if somebody was sort of even physically didn't meet the criteria of this this perfect gentlemanly um, to bring the gender back in uh, or civilized ideal then 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 they were deemed to be uh, not useless or, or unworthy of, of, of being titled civilized. And what really happened at the end of, 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 of the, the imperial period and moving um, sort of nine, the end of, of that, that period was Chinese traditional thoughts, this Confucian ideals um, really came head sort of met up with Western scientific thinking um, that Chinese elites were grappling with themselves as they sort of transitioned to these, to this new idea of a nation state. And, and I suppose more than anything, eugenics was one of those ideas that really almost complemented traditional Chinese thinking about what makes um, human quality. Um, and the, ter- the Chinese term su zhi, um, you know, is, is really encapsulates this idea of there is something about humans that we can grade and there are some humans that are better than other humans and and, and, and there are somehow we should actually try to improve humans so that they get to the highest quality of being human as, as understood it, uh, of the day. Um, now, Chinese elites were really concerned about this because in order they, they'd gone through all of these traumas of, of the period, um, um, the Opium Wars, uh, Sino, uh, so, uh, Sino-Japanese Wars, and uh, China had been proven to be very weak in, in this regard, as, you know, a century of humiliation. And this, uh, and this idea that China was actually the sick man of Asia and had to somehow cure itself uh, um, in order to sort of restore its standing on the world stage. So and lots of both within China and outside of China, um, people would, would, would sort of look for evidence that China was sick somehow, either in mind or in body. And one of the uh, you know, one of the most interesting things that I sort of found as I was looking through those those archives was the, these the paintings of Peter Parker, who was a medical missionary down in, in the south of China, um, and they were p- painted as part of a project that sort of really um, enabled, um, sort of almost visualized the tumors, the, the actual physical evidence, uh, you know, women and men with their tumors exposed was, was physical evidence that, you know, that this, that China needed curing. And all of these ideas were then adopted by both communist, the communist party and also the, the nationalist party as, as both then worked to try sort of took on this idea that in order to be a useful citizen, you had to be healthy of mind and body. Okay, thank you so much, Professor. <clears throat> I very appreciate your answer to my question. I think it's very interesting because I want to say your research on China may may renew, I mean, may contribute some like very interesting thought to our debate about like something about like uh, the able list or or able so able list uh, able list or able nationalist assumption in a definition of citizenship in in a Western context, but. I won't say according to you answer your talk. I won't say the I mean the definition of citizenship and the relationship between disability and citizenship in China is much more is is quite different from the same issue in um, in the Western context. So my next question will be um okay. my next question will be because I as I mentioned, your book talk a lot about citizenship, and when I read your book, I noticed that you use a very interesting term, very inspiring term. It's called parasitianship. So, could you please briefly talk about what is parasitianship and how what how do you think of the importance of this kind of I want category or phenomenon in in Chinese society? 
Okay, thank you. Yes, I mean, parasitizenship, this this concept was, as far as I'm aware, nobody else has used it in relationship to disability. It's been used elsewhere to, to describe people who, um, for example, migrant communities who, who have been left some, who've had a very sort of difficult relationship, shall we say, with citizenship processes. And, and I was inspired to use it because, as I said at the start, I was... I was really troubled by the fact that every every time I was looking at how citizenship was conceived in relationship to disabled people, that they were always it was always positive it was always presented as very negative. So you know, we have semi-citizens, absent citizens, shadow citizens. All of these imply that disabled people are rather passive, or, or at least, you know, they're just there's they're somehow not included in mainstream society, and they have no say in how they understand their 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 activities. So I was looking for it for a term, you know, that would actually offer more of a spectrum of 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 identity and belonging that could both cover those negative aspects so you know the ways in which as i've just mentioned you know broader more hegemonic discourses about the body the mind um ability disability uh, were conceived at a sort of a more macro level but also then but how people then lived those experiences and understood from a very personal perspective and talked about you know how it meant to be disabled could also be covered within that and i think using combining citizenship with with power is is a is a really useful way of doing it because we already understand power to mean um to be associated with disability we think about the paralympics for example para athletes um and even within that even the term a para athlete there are the de- the debates that both you know para athletes themselves you know see draw great strength and pride from their ability to you know to to, to, to apply you know do their do their work as athletes and and be rewarded for that um uh, and their achievements but you know there are critics that say you know why do we have para athletes we should just have athletes um and and they feel it's quite a disempowering term so so i wanted to have a term that could cover these debates and show that people could be both disempowered on one level but empowered in another level and 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 give and recognize that different people even within the same context could also have different understandings of that and i draw i draw a lot of my ideas from from the academic research on cultural cultural citizenship. My very good colleague here, Nick Stevenson at the University of Nottingham, is um, you know has led the way in trying to talk about citizenship as a as a process that's, that's embedded in culture. That we are all educated as to how to belong to society, but also. They, it educates us as to who belongs in society as well, and uh, and the parameters for that sense of belonging, um, and 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 so it, it enabled me to turn to the to the ways in which we should really try to imagine disabled identities, it, both in and through culture, um, and and I think that's that's how my the book the book came along, and I think language has a has a very important part to play there. And going back to sort of, you know, if we're looking at the historical trajectory of of parasitizenship in China, we see that, you know, from from more traditional societies, the imperial society sort of and through into those early days, disabled people were were described as fei wu, um, literally, you know, these these unwanted objects, rubbish, and or or the term tan fei, which is um, sort of Oh, broken and 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 rubbish people, so they or feiren, you know, rubbish people. So, so from that those understandings, they were they were then transformed through the Maoist era after 1949, and and people were arguing, you know, that my evidence shows that people are arguing that actually you're calling us this, but this isn't how I feel. You know, I I feel I am useful. I am disabled, but not useless is is the term they use, and they were very concerned about how to become useful to society. So this is a this is a process in which disabled people themselves are active players. Um, they have agency. They can choose to 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 understand and and react and negotiate and challenge these more dominant discourses of 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 you know of of 
of belonging, but also they can also find great meaning in it if they if they then understand where they fit. Uh, and and I felt that we shouldn't apply you know judgment value judgments to them. So you know and, and those conversations about how you describe yourself, what language you use, what language other people use, um, continued as well into the reform era and 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 1976 onwards. And we we now know you know disabled people at this time as China opened up in it, it, to the world and started engaging with global initiatives from the UN uh, and more recently from the um, Convention on Rights of Persons with Disability, the language is changing again. And we've gone from tan feiren, you know, these disabled and, and, and not uh, not useful or, or broken people to tan chiren, which is a little bit more medicalized, but it's still uh, tan discarded and and rubbish plus plus uh, ill or sick um but again then they it's transformed again to tan jang which is in, in the jang meaning a barrier uh and so trying to employ those uh social model understandings rights based models that disability is actually socially constructed and lived and, and this has often been driven by disabled people themselves and so i think you know, they're trying to find meaning through vocabulary. They're contesting meanings that are handed down to them, and and so parasitizenship is a fluid. It's very, it's a dynamic. We can conceive of it as a spectrum. It involves the state. It involves society. It involves historical and traditional understandings, but it also very much involves disabled people themselves and their emotions and the ways they feel about things. And I think that's one of the big things that the book brings out is, is the way in which people's voices and feelings about something can bring change, but also the ways in which governments and states also mobilise emotions <laughs> to, to, to try to get people to do or behave in a certain way based on their own classifications of what makes somebody useful or not. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little... Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yeah, perfect. Thank you so much for your answer again. So I, 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 I mean, I take some, I took some notes when I listened to your answer. I noticed that it's very interesting because you emphasize the changing, I want to say the changing perception and self-perception of people with disability in 20th century China with an emphasis on, I want to say, dynamic in the rhetoric and the discourse of the disability from Ji to Fei to Zhang. So I want to say this thing, this issue is related to our my next question. It's about representation of disability in media. So my next question is like, could you please briefly talk about the contrast and the similarity between the representation of disability in different type of media, such as novels and the movies in contemporary China? Mm, yeah, I mean, representation. I think is a really is is a really interesting way of or of interrogating the ways in which those sort of dominant discourses are, um, are perpetuated and promoted, but also the ways in which people who then uh, relate or watch those 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 cultural forms and cultural medias, but also produce them themselves. And so this is one of the reasons why I chose to look at a variety of media um, as, as part of the book, because I wanted to see how those conversations were panning out in practice um, and over time. And again, over t- you know, it's very difficult to do things on a more longitudinal basis um, through through other empirical means. And so I think, but but before I sort of talk about the, the, the those those particular sort of cultural forms that I looked at, I think, I think 
one of the, the the things that I took forward as I started my investigation and sort of reading reading these different forms was was the story of Zhang Haidi and 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 she is somebody who I've been very interested in for a long long time um and for people who don't know about Zhang Haidi, she's actually she's you know she's somebody who is immensely politically powerful now. You know, president of the of the China Disabled Persons Federation. But but when she first came to the to the notice of people in in 1981, um, she was just a young girl. Um, she um, was a wheelchair user. She had um, she had a spinal um, sort of injury, which which left her um, unable to walk. Um, and so she was, uh, but she but she was obviously extremely tenacious and um, had a very supportive family. And so living through the Cultural Revolution, she'd she'd had to, and, and you know, really work hard to get an education um a lot of her a lot of what she'd learned was actually self-educated and 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 through this she'd she'd really made her name for herself locally and she was uh, and and she, and her story was picked up by um uh, i think it was the people's daily and, and and published and her story really resonated with a lot of people at the time because here we have somebody who traditionally was considered to be i suppose weak um uh weak in body but really strong strong in terms of her perseverance and determination and and what was um uh, what i feel is that she she had I mean, it was she didn't start it, but she built on people sort of throughout the Mao era and um, exemplars and and heroes who had who had overcome their disability. And I'm here. I'm drawing on Mike Oliver's personal tragedy theory to explain how disabled people are, are seen to overcome their personal um, the tragedy of impairment. And she she really set 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 up this 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 Zhang Haidi effect, which saw people people's understanding of disability as being something that could be overcome through either cure or rehabilitation and uh, and was if you didn't do it then there was some sort of failing within yourself and uh, and there was something wrong with you but it meant that combining the appearance of Zhang Haidi uh, in the 90, early 1980s with all of China's engagement with the UN meant the cultural forms and representations from this period onwards started to build on this narrative of you could become equal, you could participate in society, you could share the bounteous joys of, of the new market economy and the sort of capitalist society with Chinese characteristics if you did these certain things. And and it was characterized by what became known as the four selves. And the four selves were um, um, the self-respect, um, uh, Self-confidence, uh, self-improvement, and self-reliance, or self-supporting nature. So these these four selves, you know, really became the core about how people, you know, should should see their lives. And so what, you know, so people were expected the, the rights were appearing in the laws and the, and and that, but they also disabled people had a role to play as well. And I think this is what seemed to give people's lives values. So when it came to looking at the, all of this was in my head as I came to look at the various media forms. And I could see this playing out, this idea that disabled people, um, you know, and this was even, so just as an aside, this was even in, uh, in films and works that were produced by disabled people themselves or had a, a sort of an intimate understanding of disability because their pa- their family um, family members were disabled was there was something that the fact that disabled people had had to draw on themselves and overcome their disability and or, to avoid becoming an object of pity um, it, the, the media also for the most part, um, presented disability as undesirable, something to be feared. Um, you know, the fact that you had to be tried to be as, and I'm using inverted commas here, as normal as possible. So, so still this idea that there was normality or a normative existence, um, i.e. non-disabled, was the ideal, but somehow disabled people could get to it or as close to it as possible um, through somehow some in- endeavours. And so... Looking at Xie Jin's films, Youth and Venus, um, 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 Sun Zhou's film, Breaking the Silence, um, uh, Zhang Yuan's uh, sort of 
pseudo documentary style film Mama, um, all of these sort of cinematic, you know, really played on this idea about um, abnormality, um, searching for normality. Um, also that, you know, that, that, that somehow people had to overcome it and that there was something wrong with them if they couldn't. When you go into literature too, particularly in the early 1980s, there was idea about the fearfulness of disability and I think, but also the fact that there were voices out there to be heard too. And I I, I, I was particularly interested in the author Shitia Shang, um, who himself um, is, a, is probably known as the most famous disabled writer in China. Um, he's no longer with us, but um, his early work in particular was, was very much focused on his own disability and sort of trying to work through what that meant to him and how he could position himself within the society at the time. I mean, he, he often didn't write about himself. He used other characters. And so it's all, all often had this sort of semi-autobiographical sort of bent to it. Um, but what was interesting about Shetia Sheng's writing is that as he wrote about people like himself who were either wheelchair users or had physical mobility issues, it, it, it seemed to it seemed to feel sort of more authentic. But as, the further he he strayed from his own experience and started to write, for example, about blindness, and this he does in Life on a String, um, which some people may have seen as as, as a, a very famous film. Um, he, he he starts to to move towards stereotype, and so. It, it, it's quite interesting that so it, it, that to me was quite telling because it shows us that it is easy to revert to stereotype <laughs> and particularly if you don't know what you're talking about and and so um but then even through those pieces about when people were talking about themselves and representing themselves people spoke in stereotype too and in these stereotypes and assumptions and they sort of built that into their own identities and and either sort of in oftentimes didn't even challenge the fact that the vocabulary they were using was actually reinforcing the, discri- the dis- discriminatory attitudes and, and stigmatizations that they were facing in their everyday life so it was really um, quite interesting to see this playing out um, through different authors and through different media across those things. I mean, bringing it up a little bit more to date, one of the most interesting novels, again, which has now been made into a film, was um, Bifeu's uh, Twena or Massage, uh, as, as it's been translated, um, also, which looks at the massage industry and how sort of blind people are funneled into. Um, uh, an industry that has been for many years assumed to be something that blind people are good at because obviously they're saying that the, the, the narrative goes if they can't see then they must be good at something else like touch um, so they, they must be good at massage and so there's a whole industry that's sort of serving disabled people blind people uh, um, it, that's built up in China and people are, are funneled through the education system to do this particular job and another one is a piano tuner you know or piano player something musical because again if you can't see then you're assumed that you have your auditory um uh, it, it, your auditory skills are, are compensated and so you know i, I would encourage people to have a you know read um twain hour or watch massage because it really it starts to challenge these notions that disabled people all want to do these things and that they all subscribe to these stereotypes about them and one of the most powerful characters in the novel is 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 somebody uh called du hong and she spoke her story really spoke to me because through her story she realizes that you know i mean she knows very much she doesn't want to be a masseuse but she has a skill at piano playing and she realizes that she's paraded out in front of a non-disabled audiences that, that she's there to make them feel better. Her impairment makes non-disabled people feel better about themselves. And she says, there are some, some phrases she talks about how she's, she realizes now that she's, she was in debt 
to non-disabled society, to the able-bodied society. And somehow she had to do stuff to pay off this debt. She didn't know how she got into this debt, but she was in it. And this is, this is the way she had to pay it off. And this idea that disabled people are perpetually living in debt to non-disabled or able-bodied society, I think is really, really interesting. And and I can see that coming out in all of these cultural forms. And it's part of this needing to overcome to become useful, a useful member of society coming in from wherever else they've been marginalized and excluded from society um, and, and brought back into mainstream society. They overcome their disability through either physical or mental means, cure rehabilitation, whatever it is, to pay back a debt to society to become useful once again. Yeah, thank you so much, Professor. Thanks again for your answer. <clears throat> so I really appreciate you talk, I mean, you're both a researcher and you talk here about Zhang Haidi because I, I think I remember her very well because I, I mean, I grew up in China in the, uh, in the 1990s when I was a child in elementary school, I learned Zhang Haidi's story uh, you learn about Zhang Haidi, yeah. yeah. I mean, impassively. it's quite an interesting thing is Zhang Haidi was never meant to be a model uh, for disabled people. Zhang Haidi was meant to be a model for non-disabled people, for the young people. So, uh, you know, so I think everybody knows Zhang Haidi and as you know, whether, whether, she's, whether her story speaks to them or not is a different matter. But yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, I I agree with you. Like you, you I really appreciate that you use the term like model. I want to say like uh, she was described in my memory. She was described as a model citizen in Chinese. I mean, public education. So um, and I I want to say well now I reflect. I mean, as a disability historian, when I I, mean, I reflect on the narrative. What I learned when I was a child in elementary school in China about Zhang Haidi, I won't say the narrative now. I take a re- and take a refreshing, take a critical refraction. I won't say the official narrative is about her. I won't say it's a fraud with I won't say um, um, over, overcome and uh, normative narrative promoted by the able-bodied authorities and the so-called mainstream society. But another person I want to, I really appreciate that you mentioned is, the, is, the, is the Shi Tiesheng. I really, I really like, I'm a big fan of him, about his, his writing, about his experience as a disabled people, which is very, very interesting for me, especially as a disability historian now. So I want to say his book, Record, much more about experience of disabled people in Chinese society and his encounter with difficulty, with discrimination, or whatever. It's, it's quite different from the official narrative of like Zhang Haidi in, China, if, in Chinese, test, Chinese textbook. So I want to say, so it's related to my next question, because I think at the end of your book, you talk a lot about the life writings composed by people with disability, and you emphasize the difference between their own narrative and the so-called public imagination. I want to say public here refers to able-bodied people. So could you talk about what's the difference between those life writing and the able-bodied imagination, able-bodied people's imagination of disability and disabled people. Yeah, no, thank you. I think, I mean, one of my, again, one of my earliest encounters with with disabled experiences in China was was through life writing. Um, And it was through the story of Zhang Haidi, obviously, but also another young man called Zhang Yuncheng. Now, he's he's now written two memoirs. and uh, he's uh, the first one of those is uh, Three Days to Walk, which in Chinese is Jia Ru Wonang Xing Zhou Santian. And his second one, which was published in 2003, and then his second one was Flying Without Wings, Huan uh, Zhong Fan Shi Feixing, which was published in 2012. And he, wh- wh- why I sort of I, I was really interested in Zhang Yucheng because I mean, first of all, he was he's a young man and. I have a lot of interest in how, you know, gender plays a role, you know, in, 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 in you know, we think about gendered identities and how that sort of intersects with experiences and, and other aspects of people's lives. And um, so thinking about how, how a young man like Zhang Yunchang, you know, could wrote a story about his experiences. And it was, it was, it was really nice because it, it, it 
I felt I could hear the frustrations of a young man coming through his 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 memoirs. Um, you know, he was he was bitter about the discrimination that he faced. He was acutely aware of the stigma of of having a disability, but through it all, he still had hope. And he, you know, the way he he sort of tried to think about how to how to how to achieve his dreams was 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 really really interesting and a lot of books written by people like Jang Yun Chung uh, and others have have when I went to sort of buy them in the bookshops it was quite interesting because they weren't in the section you would think they were in they weren't in the section which was you know biographies and memoirs um they were in the section the self-help section so these were books that weren't being seen as the, autobiographies, memoirs, life writing, in that sort of way. They were they were being promoted as self-help books. And so I could see there was a very close link between the writing of disabled people offering some form of inspiration to their able-bodied readership. And again, this is probably who the who these books are primarily aimed at. Now Jang Yun Chung became was the first, but became part of a stable of young authors, um, and not so young authors, um, who were promoted and encouraged by an editor, um, Jang Daonor, who who had what he termed a self-help project. And and basically Jang Daonor, who himself was non-disabled, would go around and sort of collect these disabled young people and, and writers and, and, and encourage them to write. And, you know, uh, uh, you know, and he's, he's, he's got a whole stable of, of books that have been published with, you know, with his support. Um, but all of them have these characteristics as well about, you know, sort of the, the reflecting on the sort of the real problems in their lives, which are often very remitted from the more official narratives promoted by the state, because the state doesn't want to tell people how awful disabled people's lives can be in China today. That's, that's you know, they want to show that the, the people have got through their, overcome their, overcome their, the, the problems be, uh, and, and, and they're living, they're living the good life now. Well, these people aren't and they haven't been. And, and so understanding how, how their lives, them telling their own lives, albeit with a, a great deal of help from Zhang Dan or who, in his own words, is often very encouraging for them to tell the darker side of their story because it would probably sell um, for a start. Um, but at least we get to hear those stories now. I, and I think it's very interesting because what they do as part of this telling the darker side is they they often focus on what I describe in the book as the troublesome their troublesome bodies. They themselves are frustrated by their existence and they themselves are, you know, trying trying to finding it hard to find meaning in the society which is telling them both at the one time that you know they're equal and they have rights but at the other hand that they clearly aren't because they are they aren't getting the education they aren't getting the employment opportunities they aren't getting the marriage opportunities all of those the good life as promised under neoliberalism so so it was thinking about how they they went through this this way of exposing their disability, their impairment to to public gaze, um, to both tell their own truth, but also to attract a readership. And so there was this very interesting link between disabled writers themselves, their experiences, and um, their non-disabled readership. And so this is very much what we talk about uh, as as the able-bodied gaze and. In a way, they're responding to what they think their non-disabled readership would want to see, but it's part of also them being necessary to tell their own story. And it and and and, and often this becomes much more acute with female writers. And it was also a really interesting characteristic about the story of Zhang Haidi. So if you compare Zhang Haidi's story to all the other male stories, the wounded heroes, etc., they all talked about their disability. But they didn't talk about the most intimate nature of the disability. So, for example, with Zhang Haidi, we hear about her incontinence. We hear her body is almost exposed to view. We're told about the fact that she wasn't able to have sex with her husband and all of these sort of these things that really expose the female body to view. And this also happens much more with female writers as well. So so the public is imagining, the non-disabled public imagines a very a weak and vulnerable female troublesome body um which which becomes a sort of core of a narrative and with one author um her name is yin shujin and her 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 her, her 
her memoir was was entitled in English uh, "A Showdown with Death," uh, which was published in 2012. She spends chapters and chapters talking about her troublesome body, and she calls it her troublesome body too. Uh, you know, exposing all the most intimate details to, to public view, but as a, as a part of saying, Look, "This is how this is me. This is this was my life." You know, and this is how. I've needed to come to terms with the fact that I was made disabled later, you know, I became disabled later on in life. You know, I wasn't born with my disability, but it's all about then again, paying back debts and, and, and seeing that, you know, you've got, you then have to find a value in your life and, 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 and do that. So my thoughts on this were that all of these people, you know, these real people, that we're talking about in these memoirs have are telling a story about how they successfully navigated themselves from a position of weakness to a position of strength. And, and this has been then used to inform and educate disabled people about how to be a good parasitizen in China. But also it informs the broader public, the non-disabled readership about what it means to be disabled and how they should think about it. So that is how it sort of feeds into that public imagination of what it means to be. So it, it almost reinforces people's fear of being disabled because they have these troublesome bodies that are, you know, you know, are often painful, um, cause, you know, cause them all sorts of anxieties and and limits opportunities, which of course we know structurally is is society itself, but this is how it's presented in these works. Um, but also, I think it often it, it's seen as an inspiration. So if if people like Zhang Haidi, Zhang Yuncheng, Yun Shu Jun can do it, and they're disabled and they have all these troubles, you know, I could, I, I too should be able to manage my own problems. Um, so this is why you know a lot of people critics, you know, have talked about inspiration porn, about how disabled you know we are not. You know, Stella Young has famously talked about you know I'm not your inspiration porn, and I you shouldn't use my experience to to you know and, and, and you know watch me do everyday tasks and wonder at them um, and wonder how I could do them in my disabled body. You know that's not how it should be. So. But it's how these people have made meaning of their lives. And so this is why I'm sort of bringing it back to this idea of parasitizenship is we need to understand that people can only make meanings of their lives within the messages that they have received from society. Um, they, they have agency in it and they can negotiate and they can challenge it themselves. But this culture is surrounds everybody. And it's only when things like aspects punctuate this environment of 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 disability and understandings of disability that we get change and so the convention on rights and persons with a disability um has 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 forced china the chinese state uh to think about how it sort of articulates rights of disabled people and and sort of and, and makes disability work a priority although even then you know and, and that has also then stimulated disabled uh groups and non-government governmental organizations to sort of try to rethink how they can also uh, fight for rights but but it's quite interesting you know still even with very clear guidance from the crpd about how we should understand disability and it really isn't about being situated within the individual it's a very it's based on the social model and that you know structures of society are the barriers um and and the oppressors um still the law on the protection of disabled persons in China still reiterates, alongside rights and dignities, it still reiterates that disabled people should be understood as people who have lost something or they cannot perform activities that are considered, and here I'm quoted, quoting again, normal. Um, so they're still measuring, they're still articulating disabled rights vis-a-vis this ideal that of 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 a, a non-disabled person, of an able-bodied person. What's even more interesting, I think, is in Article 10, and going back to the point I made about the four selves. These are actually written into Chinese law, and I, and I'll just quote quote it to you because I think it's it's it just really tells us something about it. It says, disabled persons should display an optimistic and enterprising spirit. They should have a sense of self-respect, 
self-confidence, self-improvement, and self-reliance. So those four, and make contributions to the socialist construction. So within law, they they are told that they have to be all of these things that we've been talking about today, um, which non-disabled people are not told by law that they have to do. So, so it's a, it, you know, I think I think it's absolutely fascinating, um, and you know, I, I just hope that you know it sort of provides some inspiration for 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 people working on other contexts or even within the UK and US to sort of think about how 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 we need to understand this sort of very fluid dynamic world of parasitizenship and and how and how it sort of and how it works um but that's an example of how it works i think it works in the, in the chinese context anyway yeah thank you so much professor um and one thing i want to say i will, will notice that one of your main points in your answer is like uh, i want to say like um disabled in terms of their layer right uh, life writing um chinese disabled writers they couldn't avoid use you know, the phrase you use that couldn't avoid the public gaze or able-bodied gaze, and and uh, and I want to say female female disabled writers situation may be worse like Zhang Haidi. They couldn't avoid. They, I want to say they are victim of both able-bodied gaze and male gaze. And in the second half of your answer, I think interesting because you mentioned like 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 I mean like I mean you you return to a issue of parasitianship. I want to say it's very interesting because according to in my understanding, I want to say, um, you, I mean, it's I, I can identify the similarity between the liberal, um, neoliberalist uh, definition of disability, disability, and uh, like a post-socialist definition of disability in China in the five self, and the. Oh, oh, I mean the the, the common sh- I want to say the common ground of the two type of definition beyond the ideological ideological boundary is that they both emphasize like uh, first thing narrative I mean overcome narrative second thing they emphasize like uh, they want to make I want to say they want to make disabled people usable in. I mean, politically or economically useful. Well, that thing is very, I want to say, very neoliberalist understanding disabled people. Well, it's very interesting. So, last question: Will as I as I as I think I think as as you discussed briefly in your second part of your answer to my last question, just now, let's go back to the partisanship. I think at the very end of your book, you talk about the perils and the possibility of partisanship. So, could you please briefly talk about the perils and the possibilities? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think the 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 way to answer that is sort of twofold. I think. First of all, is you know for for disabled persons themselves, you know there are certainly you know any ways of belonging and discourses of belonging hold both perils and possibilities. Um, you know regardless of where the context is, but if we understand it through the perspective of parasitizenship, we can see that this this spectrum allows them to have or allows us to understand that what might be limiting or problematic for one person in one particular context might not necessarily be seen or experienced or understood as as that in another context so um so in in itself we have to understand that people one one situation for one person may be a possibility i can see how i belong whereas for another person who's who's educated and informed by a different cultural context could actually say, well, actually, this is extremely discriminatory and oppressive and we need to talk about, you know, we need to talk about this. Um, so in terms of the perils, really, w- what I can see is that wherever disabled people are, they, and particularly in the Chinese case, they are, we can understand it as the place where dominant understandings and rationalities meet the body. So for the Chinese case, we've got socialism plus a huge dose of neoliberal rationality as a sort of meeting somewhere around the disabled body. And, and disabled persons are the people who are sort of having to navigate their way through all of this. And we can understand that. Uh, so they will then have, they, they will then get 
potentially locked in to a set of a set of sort of assumptions and stereotypes and ideas, which is very difficult to get out of. And so they may, in fact, start to reinforce the very things that they set out to <laughs> dismantle in the first place. And of course, I'm sure Zhang Haidi, um, you know, as she was being fated as a model citizen, thought she was doing a great deal for advancing the rights of, of disabled persons. But actually, by, um, you know, creating this narrative, it actually may have set back disabled rights and opportunities in, um, for the longer term, and I think, but um, I mean, hopefully that will change. I don't know. But so, so these people are seen as successful. They've done the successful navigation. And so disabled people can see the possibility of changing their lives. And so, you know, broadly, it might be that they are set back um, in terms of how uh, you know how broader non-disabled society and the structures of society and policies and governments you know look at disabled persons because they're not directly challenging the root of the oppression that they face, um, but still they see the possibility of actually being of value to society and being of use to society and being back in mainstream society. There's a lot of talk about you know um, return to society you know, pay back society, be of value. And and so th- it seems like an avenue of opportunity. So that's why I'm sort of thinking about perils and possibilities. Um, in terms of the second way is thinking about for academic inquiry. And I think what I was, try- again, going back to the point I made at the beginning is I'm sort of trying to think about the ways in which we can understand these seemingly contradictory and complex things that are going on underneath um, underneath everything and it's not there isn't a consistent narrative that that everybody is 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 understanding we're all not everybody around the world is working to the same same principles but if we think of citizenship as as something that affects disabled people that they are often passively uh, engaged in but sometimes actively engaging with the fact that um, it can be imposed but it, it can also be negotiated and challenged all of these things and and that it's it's not a consistent sort of understanding that if you say this then it's bad because pe- some people in certain societies might actually think it's a really good thing and will help them in the short term although it might even not be in the long t- in the long run so yeah, I think I think there are poss- perils and possibilities both for disabled persons and also for academic inquiry in 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 thinking about thinking about parasitizenship. But what I'm hoping is that you know, you know, taking the learnings from the social model and the human rights model and all of these other models that are actually you know working to ensure people have rights as well as responsibilities, and that's I think the Chinese case has proven there are a lot more responsibilities than rights at the moment. That 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 spectrum, you know, China will move along that spectrum so that disabled people are granted more rights without the responsibilities that that come with them. Um, whereas at the moment, I think it's more a sense of responsibilities have overridden the rights section of it. So um, yeah, so that's that, that that's my view of of, of parasitizenship and how it how it might be changing it in itself and depending on context and time uh, and place. Okay, Professor, thanks so much for your answer to my last question. So at the at the very end of our talk today, I want again, as I always did in my I mean in my episodes in the past, I may recommend my I mean the audience of our podcast to read, to buy a copy of Professor Sarah Dunphy's newest book, Disability in Contemporary sorry, Disability in Contemporary China, Citizenship, Identity, and the Culture. It's published by Cambridge University Press. So thank you so much to listen to our talk I mean you know, our about Professor Dunphy's talk about her fantastic book about disability in contemporary China. So have a good time. See you next time. Thank you.